Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 2nd, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 33. This chapter is a key turning point in Ezekiel's ministry. The Lord will renew the prophet's call to serve as a watchman for Israel right before the news reaches Ezekiel that the city of Jerusalem has been struck down. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Always great to be here. Let's start with a little context this morning. This is a pretty key turning point. We've kind of been waiting for this moment in the book of Ezekiel. Where have we been? You bet. What's he been doing? And and what's going to be so important that we're going to encounter in this chapter? Right. It really is not just a turning point in his life, but also in the uh, in the book as well, because um, you know, hopefully as your listeners know that as we've been going through this, we have kind of the, the introduction um, in, uh, in chapters uh, 1 through 11, where, uh, where Ezekiel, uh, he starts off with this rather enigmatic kind of scene where he's, uh, you know, where he's by the, uh, the Kevar Canal and uh, you know, he sees this vision of God, like, well, well hey, why, is he, why did he leave the temple? And then it goes and tells the whole backstory to that and how Israel has become apostate. And, and something I want to point out right away, because this is going to be really critical to when we ask some questions later on, um, that Ezekiel has, uh, it's already been established, you know, that, um, that Israel is going to be punished for their sins. You know, this is, this is a certainty. This is not kind of up in the air. This is not like, well, if you do it one more time, then, then you're, then this is going to happen. But I mean, you know, the, the, the hour is already too late. Israel will, they have sown the wind and they will reap the whirlwind to uh, another prophet. And so um, then we, uh, after that, we, we had kind of like these major threefold section of judgment. So we had the judgment against Israel in chapters 21 or 12 through 24. And then uh, Ezekiel turns to the nations and the judgments upon the nations, 25 through 32. Now we have this really pivotal section and specifically you might say the judgment on Jerusalem, but it's it's just as much about Ezekiel as it is about Jerusalem, and this is going to become the bridge into the what you might call the much more gospel-oriented part of the uh, book. Right. This is this is where Ezekiel makes that turn that we've been waiting for this whole time, and it in a certain sense this chapter does seem to have a foot in both sections where where there's going to be. I mean, we're going to hear things Absolutely. that we've, we've heard before already. And there's going to still be plenty of talk of judgment in this chapter as well, even as we know that that fuller preaching proclamation of restoration is coming. So we've got a lot of text before us today, Pastor Johnson, so let's jump right in. We're going to read the first part of Ezekiel 33. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. 
He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. That's Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 9. Pastor Johnson, we've encountered this image of the watchman before, back in chapter 3, in Ezekiel's call. That was what the Lord said, you're going to be a watchman. Here we have sounds very, very similar. Help us into the image of the watchman. What's the what is the image and how does it apply to what Ezekiel is given to do? Right. It, and you just said it perfectly there because that's exactly how the structure goes. First, the Lord kind of gives you the general picture of, okay, here's what a watchman does and, and here's how his culpability works. In other words, here's how his responsibility works. And then he says, and I've made you, Ezekiel, a watchman. Now, I mean, it, it's interesting because this is indirectly about Israel. But notice, I mean, this is really, <laughs> this is really focused on Ezekiel's role. So, you know, the first number of verses really just basically say, listen, this is how a watchman works, right? If, uh, you know, if, if they pick a guy to be the watchman and, you know, and he fails his job, then it's kind of on his head, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because he was failing to do his task. But if he uh, does do his job and he warns them and they still don't, you know, if the people don't take arms or lock the gate or whatever it is that they're supposed to do, then the the blood is on their head. He did his job, right? Now, but I wanted to uh, to note something about that scenario because it gets repeated several times. And I, and I think this is actually theologically very important later on. In either case, you know, like in this hypothetical situation, the people die either way. And so, I mean, it's, it's kind of certain already. Um, and so, but so then he says, okay, this is, so this is generically, uh, you know, how a watchman works. But Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. Uh, you know, and he calls him, you know, of course, son of man. You know, it's often how the Lord refers to Ezekiel. I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel, not just a city or some unnamed garrison somewhere, but for the house of Israel. And, uh, and he kind of repeats his responsibility, and it's perfectly parallel to that. That, uh, that your job is, um, you know, if you... You know, you hear the, uh, the word from me, and you've got one of two options. You can either warn the people or you can fail to warn them. If if you fail to warn them, they're going to die, and blood's going to be on your head. If you, But if you do warn them, uh, you know, then they're still going to die, but the blood won't be on your head. And so once again, notice that uh, when he makes the application finally in the latter part of the section, they're going to die either way. Um, once again, I think that dovetails very, well, I shouldn't say nicely because it's not nice at all. It's actually rather depressing, but it dovetails clearly with the, uh, uh, 
chapters 1 through 11, where it clearly shows that this is sort of a foregone conclusion, that Israel is going to be punished for her sins. The hour is far too late. There's nothing that can be done to avert this. Now, that doesn't mean there's no hope. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But the die is cast. They will be punished, period. So the only question here is, is Ezekiel going to be a faithful watchman or an unfaithful one at times like this? I do, I do think the fact that you're pointing out about, in both cases, whether it's the difference is whether or not the watchman cries out or doesn't, and in the hypothetical, they die in both cases. They don't listen to the watchman when they have the chance, that that is a, a good connection to what's been said previously. But as you said, there's, there is going to be hope, and that's really going to be the bridge into the next section of chapter 33, verses 10 to 20 are really going to almost be a, an objection from the people, it seems. Well, wait a second, Lord. <laughs> if if you're saying all these people are going to die one way or the other, what what's the point? And that's where the Lord is going to extend his—it's going to start to turn toward that grace. We're going to hear, again, another repeat of some of the things that Ezekiel has said about the Lord desiring that the sinner would turn and live. So— Right. It's not a completely hopeless situation. And I do think No, that- absolutely not. And note, notice by the way as as we get into these next verses, you know, the dual themes of living and dying. Um that it's not a foregone conclusion. Like they're going to be punished, but that doesn't mean sort of the last word on life. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at those coming verses then. Let's just pick up in the text again with verse 10. Keeping in mind what we've said, this is really all going to tie together, but it is helpful how to see these how to see these themes continue. So we're going to read now Ezekiel 33, verses 10 and following. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall utterly live, Yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the sins he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say, The way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. That takes us through verse 20 of Ezekiel chapter 33. So Pastor Johnson, those first couple of verses, I think, really set the tone for the whole thing. The The question becomes, how then can we live? How does that question really shape this section? Right. Yeah. And it's a genuine question. I mean, it, I mean, in some ways it has 
it's not just a simple inquiry, uh, but as you already hinted at, I mean, it's kind of like the Israelites throwing up their hands and say like, well, hey, if, if this is how it is with all of, our, uh, if all of our sins, right? If we're weighed down by all the things we've done wrong, we rot away because of them, he says, you know, how then can we live? Um, you know, you know, is there a way out of all of this? You know, where's the escape hatch? Is there, or are we just doomed forever? Um, and so, I mean, that's the, the, the question that, that Israel is, is really asking. And it's a perfectly legitimate question. Um, because as we already noted, the watchman was only declaring judgment on people like, listen, you're, you know, you're going to die either way. It's just whether or not I'm going to actually be faithful and tell you that you're going to die. Um, and so it, it really sets it, you know, the, the people confess what seems to be an impossible situation. I think that's one of the first key things because I think there's a bit of squirminess in this whole, uh, this whole latter part, especially like for, for us Lutherans, because, you know, we all just, you know, we want everything to sound like Romans chapter three, right? Uh, you know, there's a, you know, there's, there's a righteousness by faith, part from the law, so on and so forth. And this passage doesn't sound like that. And, you know, we need to, kind of face that for what it is, but it's not the kind of works righteousness I think that we might first read it as, though. Mm. So so they've asked, you know, how then can we live? And then the Lord really responds, and I think this is such a critical turning point, because here the Lord sort of like, he, he plays his hand now. He says, hey, um, you know, all I've given you so far is wrath, but here's, here's my true nature. I mean, not to sound too, you know, uh, touchy-feely about it, but I mean, he sort of unveils his heart that he, he says, you know, listen, I, I don't want to kill all of you. This isn't, that's not, that's not my goal, right? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but what's his main goal? That the wicked would turn from his way and live. And of course, as you know, and I'm sure that, you know, pastors have mentioned like a million times already in this book, turn, the word turn is the word for repent. So repent, turn back, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Uh, turn from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, you know, so he kind of flips their question around, but now it becomes rhetorical. You know, how then can we live, they ask? He says, well, why will you die? Because if the way forward begins with turning, that is repentance, then what's implied there is they don't have to die. That's the real key. They don't have to die. Um, and, and, that's a, and you know that's what he's going to begin to unfold in all of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that does tie right back into the thought of the watchman, because, you know, why will you die? That's why the watchman was there to begin with, is so that the people wouldn't die. It, it, the whole purpose of setting Ezekiel or any right. of the prophets as a watchman wasn't so that he would cry out to deaf ears, even though that's what largely happened. The mm-hmm. purpose was the Lord crying out so that their ears would listen, that they would turn, that they would you know do whatever you needed to do, shut the gate, put the the army up there, however that that works. You know, ultimately theologically, repent. That's what the whole purpose was. And I mean, I do think it's it's almost like in this section, the people who are, have been listening to Ezekiel for the first 32 two chapters, something dawns on them at this point. So, suddenly they, mm-hmm. they get it, and they, they realize that his preaching of repentance has been for a purpose, and they've almost I mean, it's like they've been brought to that despair, and now they're, they're at that point where they're ready to hear 
the good news, which which again, there is good news in this section. And I think it, it's really going to be fleshed out as this, you know, the rest of the book continues. But again, that, that's where I, I think you see this chapter with a foot in in both parts of the book, the the judgment yep. part and the coming restoration. So with with that in place, Pastor Johnson, you said we want to make sure that we we know that this part of the chapter is not works righteousness, even though it kind of sounds like that maybe the first read. So how do we rightly understand what Ezekiel says here about you know the righteous falling away, the wicked? I mean, what what's going on here? Well, let me, sorry, you said something that, that triggered something in my brain, so I will get to that in a, in a second. But you, uh, let me wax kind of uh, more like, you know, higher, you know, sort of um, 30,000 foot theological for a second. You notice, though, that as long as Ezekiel, as long as the Lord is talking about Ezekiel's particular role as watchman, you know, it's it's to pronounce their judgment. But you notice that that repentance is not a function of Ezekiel's, you know, persuasive ability or, you know, or, uh, you know, his particular genius as a, as a prophet. But you notice the real turn in verse 11, you know, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. It comes directly from the Lord's speaking. In other words, uh, I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, is that um, the hope um, that the uh, the hope that is being introduced is being introduced directly from God Himself. In other words, so it underscores the fact that this is not just Ezekiel saying, "Well, hey, let me point out the silver lining to you," but this is actually God bringing this good, you know, this good and this hopeful news. That listen, I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not like I'm not you know throwing a party because you're all going to die. Um, but that this is. This is his heart and will, and it's from God, not, you know, not from the, not from the genius of the prophet, but from the mouth of the Lord. Um, so anyway, so back to your question, though, you, you asked, so how do we, how do we tease this out? Because maybe let's start, uh, because in all honesty, I, I've always been a little bit squeamish about this, this passage, especially when it comes up in the lectionary, because on first read, it really does sound, um, kind of like this works righteous passage um especially when it says for example um oh where is it that he will uh you know he will judge uh yeah he will judge them for for what they what they do Hmm. and um but the first thing i think we should notice is that um there's there's two different hypothetical people. There's the person, the, sort of, there's the righteous man who ends up doing wicked things, and then there's a wicked man who ends up doing righteous things. But if you really want to tease that out, in the end, both men have done wicked things, and if they're go- both ultimately going to be evaluated by their like by their total track record, you might say, they're both an epic fail, right? Mm. I mean because. You know, so if you if you start righteous and you end unrighteous, or you end righteous but you start unrighteous, you still got the problem on unrighteousness in either situation, right? Mm. And so I think we need to take a, to look at this whole thing and say the fact that the Lord would have a way of uh, of treating anyone as either of these two, um, you know, hypothetical you know people as righteous can only actually be accomplished by mercy and forgiveness. And, um, and I know those, those words aren't exactly right in the text, but I think as we, as we kind of spell this out, 
um, I think it, uh, it really does, you know, it really does come to that. Um, right. Let me, I'm just taking a look over the text again. Uh, yeah, that he, uh, you know, you notice in to the righteous man, he initially talks to, he says, you know, you'll surely live. And yet he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice. And so you'll notice there that the, um, that the error that he commits is that he places trust in his own righteous track record, but then does injustice. Then none of his righteous deeds will be remembered, but it, that it's his injustice that he's going to die. But then there's the, uh, the counterpart as Ezekiel warns, or I should say the Lord warns the wicked one, um, that uh, as he turns, now I realize that both individuals are described as turning later on, but I think it's noteworthy that at least at first, in these first couple of verses, that the righteous man is um, described as trusting in his righteousness, but the wicked man is described as turning from his sin. And so in that first part, it is not clear that the righteous man, who then ends up going astray, has any kind of real, real repentance involved. Mm. Now, I, I want to be careful because I don't, we don't want to turn you know, uh, um, repentance into like another checkbox on our spiritual list of things that we need to do, in, you know, and we turn that inevitably into a work. Because I don't think that's certainly not what the Bible teaches, and I don't think that's what the passage here in Ezekiel is, is getting to. But, um, but, uh, yeah. And anything on that, on that so far, I, mean, I, I know I'm starting to, uh, no, that, that's I'm all starting to race ahead here. That's, that's all very good. One of the things that does stand out to me when you put this part of the text side by side with what we've just looked at, where in the, the watchman section, you've got the primary emphasis on the watchman is going to cry or not cry, but either way, the people aren't going to listen. They're going to die. Here, the emphasis seems on the other side, where the emphasis is much more on the wicked one who is told, you shall surely die, and, and yet, miraculously, he turns. And, and the, right. there's a longer description in terms of what that looks like within his life. Again, I think, you know, really, I don't know, counterbalancing is maybe not the right word, but putting the stopping there from being the hopelessness or utter despair— and, and rather to say, no, look, the whole, again, to emphasize the point the Lord makes, the whole point of this is so that you would turn. Why would you die? There's no reason for you to die. Here's right. here's the way out. Here's turn, turn. And as, as you've said, that's not something we do. That is something that the Lord works. And, and as you very well pointed out, it wasn't because of the genius of Ezekiel, but it was because of the word of the Lord that he has been given to speak. I mean, and you think about the first 32 chapters of this book, how often Ezekiel has been saying, or the, the word the Lord has been saying through Ezekiel, then they will know that I am the Lord. I mean, over right. and over again, that's been the whole point. And it, it's been that word of the Lord that has brought the people to know who the Lord is. And here we really are seeing a picture of of the deepest part of his his heart, his true desire to bring them to repentance and out of death into life. Right. I mean, this is actually an act of self-disclosure by God. You want to know who he is? I mean, here's who he is. He's the one who doesn't want everyone to die. But the, but the only way, as, uh, as Martin Fonsman once beautifully put it, is the low gate of repentance, or I think it's the narrow door of repentance, you know, kind of a, uh, capitalizing upon the imagery that Jesus himself uses. 
And, um, you know, but, but that's ultimately, though, uh, the, uh, the only path of mercy. But it is indeed the path of mercy. Um, yeah, there was a, gosh, there's, I've got so many other thoughts on this floating through my head. What, one more point to, uh, to talk about this one. I think um, the character, well, let me ask you, what character does this remind you of? Hopefully you're thinking the right one. Um, what character does this remind you of as you hear, uh, you know, Ezekiel being commissioned to, uh, you know, to tell the people uh, to repent, you know, in light of their sins and not die? Well, I mean, I suppose you could think of any number of of prophets who are given a similar message, but perhaps John the Baptist comes to mind. See, that's what I thought, and you're you're right. That's fair. That I I should have I should have given you I should have told you New Testament characters. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right, but no, but this is this is very similar to the commission that John the Baptist has given. You know, he's you know his message is repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand the reign of heaven is at hand and i think you know sometimes we think so narrowly of what the reign of god actually means or the kingdom of god actually means in many ways what ezekiel has been describing is in very much god's reign that is his active ruling over the nations but in this but in this way as god is reigning the most one of the most unexpected things is happening and that is God's reign actually involves him using a pagan nation in order to punish his own people. That indeed is, is part of his reign. But that's not all of his reign, though. That his reign is, uh, is go, going to become all the more manifest as, uh, as the Lord himself will turn his people from their sins and will eventually, as we're going to see you know, in a couple of chapters, not to steal anybody's thunder, but restore them once again to the, uh, to the promised land. Um, you know, both in Israel, but also, you know, eschatologically in the end. Mm. And so, uh, so I think there's this great, great parallel that, that uh, John the Baptist is truly, um, you know, I know he's Elijah to come. I also think he's Ezekiel to come. Mm. And, um, and in that way, we see the, the prophetic practice of warning being kind of echoed in the New Testament. You know, I, I think with that parallel between Ezekiel and John, with and particularly as you brought out John preaching, you know, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and thinking about how that kingdom comes ultimately through the cross of Jesus Christ, what a, what a striking parallel for Ezekiel to be preaching about the kingdom of God, and, and there's going to be this pivotal event that we'll pick up on the other side of the break of the fall of Jerusalem. And I, I mean, I think you could draw, I mean, thinking about this kingdom of God idea and how that reign works, that he's going to reign even through the fall of his own city, Jerusalem here. Yeah, he's going to do that. And he's going to do it even more so through the death of his own son, on the right. cross with uh, yeah so i think there's some connections that we can tease out but we'll do more as, of that we'll do more of that right, on the other side as jerusalem falls again that's right that's right and we'll do more of that on the other side of the break you're listening to sharper iron here on kfuo talking ezekiel chapter 33 with pastor jeremiah johnson we'll be right back please stick around
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 2nd. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 33 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson of Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at the first 20 verses of this chapter. Ezekiel as a watchman given to preach to the people of Israel because he desires that they would repent and live. And we actually received a question here on Sharper Iron from Ezekiel chapter 3, which is parallel to much of what's in this chapter. We mentioned this earlier about Ezekiel already having been called to be a watchman, and we get that again here. So I'm going to read that question because I think this is a great place for us to discuss it. So the question goes like this. Regarding today's episode on Ezekiel from Ezekiel 3, I was wondering if you and all pastors are given the charge to be watchmen, as described in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Are you always expected to call out whenever you see sin or evil in the church and in your communities? Does the seminary prepare you for this type of service to the Lord? So that's the question that was sent in. It's a very good question, Pastor Johnson. I think Ezekiel 33 shed some light on this as well. What do you think, pastors as watchmen? Right. This is an excellent question, and it's it's something that um, uh, caused me a, a great amount of uh, fruitful kind of reflection. But the short answer, I would say, is that pastors are first and foremost commissioned to be watchmen of their flock, of the Lord's church. Um, if there is some, um, if there is some function of being a watchman to the the whole world to unbelievers, I think it is sort of at best secondary and it doesn't really, I don't think that mandate would come out of this text. Um, you know, so the reason I say that, so I, I don't want to sound like we're shirking the duty of, of being able to, uh, to call out sin in the outside world. I think there's a place for that, but I think we need to make sure to keep primary things primary. Um, so just from Ezekiel itself, um, I would say first we should notice that uh, who Ezekiel's you know primary charge is um, you know in both chapter three and also here in chapter thirty three Ezekiel is given the charge to be a watchman over God's people not to the entire you know not to all the nations now of course having said that um, as we both noted earlier on you know Ezekiel doesn't he is indeed given that that job to be a, a prophet. You know who is going to deliver oracles against all the other nations as well, but specifically in this in this context, it's not talking about that job. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of this, you know, this gets into some broader but really important questions about, you know, um, how much do we understand the role of a pastor from other offices in? Uh, you know, it, you know that are described in the Bible, and when, of course, when I say office, I don't mean something with four walls, but I mean those roles, those vocations. And so, obviously, you know, one of the common ones is the, you know, the office of prophet. Um, and there's definitely, you know, there's definitely a lot of overlap because both prophets and 
pastors are given to, you know, to proclaim the word of the Lord, right? Thus says the Lord. Um, so they certainly have that in common. But I also think we need to be very careful about not kind of applying the, you know, the whole thing, you know, hook, line, and sinker from the prophet to the modern, you know, New Testament pastor. Uh, because, you know, frankly, there's a lot of things that even like from prophet to prophet aren't all the same, you know, aren't all the same tasks, right? Um, you know, for example, that like Obadiah, he's, he is given to be a prophet against one nation. It's not even Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in Jonah, likewise, he's, uh, he's got, he's kind of a one trick pony. He goes to, he goes to Nineveh. Um, but there are other prophets who have like a whole, you know, a whole slew of different responsibilities and tasks. Some, you know, some are also priests at the same time as being prophets. Some aren't. And so it's, um, you know, so we do want to be careful, but without getting, without getting too far afield, my point is simply that we always want to be very thoughtful and careful that we don't just take anything that a prophet doesn't say, well, that's what a pastor is supposed to do. Um, sure. And well, I mean, you know, thinking about Ezekiel's ministry, for example, he does a lot of weird stuff when it comes to right. his, his prophecies, you know? So for example, we wouldn't say that a pastor today needs to eat certain bread made according to a certain recipe as Ezekiel was given to do, or that, you know, the pro the pastor needs to lay on his side. I mean, you can think about those specific yeah. tasks of Ezekiel that are given to him and to him alone. Yeah. And, or, or build a Lego model that's of the right. town, right? That's Destroy right. it. <laughs> as much fun as that might be. That, yeah, that right. may not be the job for the pastor today. Having, having said that, I do think that there is a, that this, at least the image of watchmen Absolutely. Pro provides a lot of overlap and, and particularly mm -hmm. verses seven through nine of this chapter of Ezekiel 33, which I, I looked up in the, the Lutheran service book agenda, that text is suggested for ordinations or installations. So when, when you're getting a new pastor, one of the possible Old Testament readings that's suggested is this text. So I think that that sheds some light that the at least the image of the watchman, even mm -hmm. if it's not every specific task that Ezekiel was given to do, that image still applies. And I think particularly, you know, when the Lord speaks something, that is what the pastor is to speak. And, and right. if he does it and people don't listen— that's on them. If he doesn't speak the word of the mm -hmm. Lord and they don't listen, well, they haven't had any chance to listen, they're still going to die in their iniquity, as the, the example goes. But now it's on the pastor's head. And so, I mean, I think, right. again, maybe not all the specifics, but that broad image of watchmen, I think, very much applies. And, and two, I mean, I think we should say, of course, he's given to preach to his congregation. You know, that's you stand mm -hmm. in the pulpit there in Plymouth, Minnesota, and I stand in right. one here in Smithville get around saints of God who have gathered, and, and maybe some visitors, maybe some who aren't Christians, and, and we may not always have that same audience with the world. So there is that, you know, that calling to the congregation, and yet right. we do know that the Word of the Lord is for all people, and so as mm -hmm. opportunity presents itself, certainly there there is the time and the place for the pastor to call out, according to the Word of the Lord, you know, what, I mean, basically, just to speak the Word of the Lord faithfully, wherever he may be. Right. Right. You know, there's, um, especially with regard to the pastor, um, you know, in, you know, with regard to his flock, there are so many Bible passages that do talk about, you know, this, this function of a watchman, especially to rebuke the congregation. Um, you know, it's, it's in, it's in James, it's in Hebrews, you know, one of the, um, 
one of the, the passages that I think most everybody is uh, is familiar with is like First Timothy five twenty. So as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And talking about you know to a pastor Timothy in the Christian congregation, and there's some more in Second Timothy and Titus as well. Um, I think it's all summarized really nicely in uh, in Martin Franzman's hymn. You know, preach ye the word and plant at home to those who like or like it not. <laughs> and uh, and th- that really, th- that's quite right. Uh, so hopefully I didn't give you the wrong impression that by giving, I gave the long qualification at first, but it doesn't mean that there's no kind of watchman function, especially for the pastor. There absolutely is. But I, I also think at the same time, I should say, but I think in addition um, that, uh, that when we do this, there's a, um, it's hard. Right. I think every pastor who's done this faithfully knows that like this does not make them friends. I mean, when you tell I mean, sorry, this is generic, so don't read anything into this. But like when you tell like one of, you know, one of your elders, you know, daughters that she can't be living together with her boyfriend, like nobody likes to hear that, you know, and oftentimes, you know, you get people's feathers all ruffled. I mean, I think I think the idea of rebuking sin, everybody's great with in the abstract. But when it's either them or their family members or somebody they're close to all of a sudden, uh, you know, and it gets, it gets real, uh, it gets real uncomfortable really fast. And, uh, and, and that's, I mean, you can, <laughs> I think that's probably one of the places where, you know, yeah, pastors do indeed end up reflecting Ezekiel because Ezekiel was not a popular dude in his day. There's no doubt about that. That's right. And, and sometimes pastors end up being the same, not not to say that we like go out of our way to be jerks or about it or anything like that. You know, us being unpopular is not the affirmation of our ministry, but we're fully aware though, that sometimes that's just the way it goes. Right. And I mean, the Lord made Ezekiel aware of that from the very beginning that he was going to be sent to this rebellious house. Right. I I do think just, just a, a few more reflections on this thought. I think that this is where the image of the watchman comes as as very helpful in those situations because it is a reminder that mm-hmm. the, the reason the pastor is speaking isn't because you know say he doesn't like that elder's daughter or because you know he's got it out for somebody it, it's in, in fact quite the opposite it's because he sees the danger coming and he wants to warn you of that danger so that right. you would be spared of it and and in that regard you know I mean that's where any faithful Christian in their various vocations, also serves as as a watchman of sorts. Because, I mean, I, I've known of, in, in many, there are many situations where it's not necessarily the pastor who's the one to call out the warning, but it is that faithful Christian in their own right. vocation who does the same thing. And so that, I mean, a Christian in, in a vocation or the church as a whole also engages in some of these watchman functions as well. Absolutely. And I think that's really where it starts to, you know, to broaden to all of our society because, uh, you know, we, right. we look out for our neighbor, not, you know, what will, uh, not simply what they want to hear, but what is ultimately best for them. And sometimes those two things do not align. And, uh, and it's difficult, especially in, uh, you know, kind of the, the really sort of toxic atmosphere that we, uh, that we live in today. Because when you disagree with somebody, that's like, you know, that is often taken as a, you know, as a, uh, a moral imperative against them. When really you're just trying to do what's best, but uh, it's yeah, it's it is not. It's an easy thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to do. 
right? And we need the Lord's strengthening for that, which again, that's the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord told right. him, I'm going to make your, I mean, this goes back to chapter three again, I'm going to make your face harder than theirs. And, and so the Lord strengthens us, his pastors, he strengthens his whole church with his word to do that difficult task, to, to speak his word faithfully, even when it earns us the, the right. hatred or the ire of the world. His word continues to strengthen us for that task, just as his word strengthened Ezekiel for that that task that he was given in the 500s BC. Right. So, Pastor, one, one go final ahead, word Pastor on one final word on that. I think one of the places we can, one of the vocations in which we can see this most clearly playing out is is parenthood. Um, because we often, I mean, you've got kids, I've got kids, and we know that we often make really unpopular decisions with our kids. <laughs> But oftentimes it's so much clearer to us as parents, you know, listen, we know that you don't like this, but we're doing it for your good. Please trust us. And oftentimes, you know, our kids, they don't know. And, uh, and, and sometimes they trust us, sometimes they don't. But in the end, we know we do, that doing what is best for them versus what is most popular, uh, you know, that's the key thing about being a parent. And in many ways, um, it's no, it's no surprise to me that St. Paul talks about pastors as spiritual fathers. Yeah, yeah. And there's again, there's overlap with the watchman image there as well. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Pastor Johnson, thank you for, for helping with that question. Again, very great question. And, and to everyone, please consider, if you have a question about Ezekiel, anything we cover, we may not be able to get to it right away, but send it in. Let us talk about these things, because I, I was very blessed by having that conversation talking further about these things, considering how Ezekiel has something to say for us as a watchman as well. So we've got the rest of chapter 33 before us today. We're picking up again at verse 21, and this is that key turning point in the book of Ezekiel. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me from the evening before the fugitive came. And he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land, but we are many. The land is surely given us to possess. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat flesh with the blood, and lift up your eyes to your idols, and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. And I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice, and plays well on an instrument. 
for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's the rest of Ezekiel chapter 33. That was verses 21 through 33. Pastor Johnson, those first two verses really go together quite nicely. This is when the news of the fall of Jerusalem finally reaches Ezekiel. And and this is a, a key turning point, as you said, in Ezekiel's life, in his ministry, in this book, and really in history. I don't, I don't know that we always grasp just how big an event this actually is. So take us into those couple verses and the news reaching Ezekiel. Right. So just as a quick review, uh, although I'm sure most of you hearers remember this, but, um, you know, the exile was not a, a one-time thing. It happened in multiple stages. You recall, of course, the first time um, the Babylonians came in, they took uh, you know, Ezekiel and the leadership exile, but in exile, but Jerusalem hadn't fallen yet. So sometimes I think it's easy when we get lost. We, we forget that that hasn't happened historically yet. Finally, though, though 12 after 12 years of exile, the uh, the word finally uh, finally comes to them, you know. And but Jerusalem, of course, is not. It's not just another city to fall. I mean, it's you know, it's the place. It's Mount Zion. It's where the Lord is actually promised to be uh, with His people. So all of the, you know, uh, all of the theologically, you know kind of doomsday his sort of stuff that's in Ezekiel 1 through 11 that he talks about with the Lord leaving, you know, leaving his temple and, and you know, this is terrible and awful. Now it's actually finally come to pass. He gets this, uh, he gets this word now from, uh, uh, from an exile. This is the last guy. It kind of reminds you almost a little bit of Job. Remember when, uh, when all the servants come back, you know, uh, Hey, people stole all your camels and I'm the only guy who, uh, who right. survived to tell about it. And, and so here we've got a fugitive from, uh, from Jerusalem. But I think it's also fascinating um, because it says that, uh, it, it notes that apparently Ezekiel had been mute. I, it doesn't say how long. I'm not sure how many theories there are about this. I couldn't find that much about it. Um, but apparently he was mute for some period of time before this, and then the Lord actually opened his mouth. And so in other words, we had, remember, Ezekiel's the Lord's mouthpiece. There was silence from the Lord until the destruction of Jerusalem. Isn't that crazy? You know, it, you would think it would be the other way around, but the it's the Lord's kind of like quintessential act of judgment that actually brings on a word from the Lord. Um, unfortunately, it's not exactly a very good word from the Lord, but it does actually prompt a uh, a word from the Lord. Hmm. And uh, and the uh, the argument then. That they uh, uh, that the people back in the land are making is a, it's a very interesting one. It almost seems like they're they're trying to make this legal argument, but not a theological one. They're basically saying, "Hey, listen, Abraham got to to inherit this entire land, um, you know, and he was just one guy. But there's a whole bunch of us. So how much more should we actually be able to inherit the land?" <laughs> but notice what's missing. There's not a single reference to the covenant with Abraham. Um, but on the contrary, the Lord kind of uh, brings up against them, almost like almost like he's putting them on trial, which was kind of what was hinted at in the previous part part of the chapter. Uh, he's saying, "Well, listen, you know, it's pretty simple. Uh, you did you did all these things wrong that were contrary to the covenant. In other words, this was not somehow a um, kind of an automatic, 
you know, God is not a vending machine where you just put in enough quarters and you get a holy land to live in. Uh, that there was actually, there were stipulations of the covenant and they broke them left, right, and center. There's no doubt about it. Um, so any thoughts on that? I wanted to talk a little bit about just a few of these stipulations they broke. Sure. Just briefly on the matter of Ezekiel's speechlessness, it was back in chapter 3 when Ezekiel was first called to be a prophet that the Lord told him, I'm going to make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth. You'll be mute. But, oh, but, right. but then he did say, when I speak with you, I'll open your mouth. So essentially, you know, the, Ezekiel wasn't talking unless the Lord gave him something to talk. And I, I do right. think the, the point that, that I heard you making here is that how surprising that the moment that Ezekiel, that, that temporary mutinous or, or, you know, on and off again, mutinous, the moment that that's lifted is the fall of the city. Wow. I mean, what, a, and here's to go back to what we we're talking about with the kingdom of God earlier, that this would be that event. That doesn't seem quite right. That right. the cross would be that event doesn't seem exactly. that right, but yet that's what Paul says. I preach Christ crucified. I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. And again, I think there's a there's a connection there and, uh, that that we can make. And, and so hopefully, but boy, I, I know you got some more to say. We got about seven minutes. This is such a fruitful text, Pastor Johnson. So take us into any of these things that they're doing in verses 23 through 29. And then also make sure we catch what's there in the, the very last verses of this chapter as well. Absolutely. So just a few little technical things, for example, um, when he says, you know, uh, the Lord accuses the Israelites of eating the flesh with the blood and uh, lift up your eyes to the idols and shed blood. Well, lifting up your eyes to the idols and shedding blood, that's pretty obvious. You know, it's, it's idolatry. It's, it's against the first commandment. Eating flesh with the blood is kind of this strange idiom when you look into it, but the short of it is it's probably some kind of, you know, pagan ritualistic meal that usually goes along with, um, you know, with pagan sacrifices. And so this is, this is full on, they have given themselves over to, to foreign gods, um, you know, which is obviously, you know, completely contradictory to uh, Ezekiel's refrain, then they will know that I am the Lord, because they're not treating him like their Lord, they're treating everybody else like the Lord. Um, you know, and then, then there's, of course, the, uh, you know, you rely on the sword, you commit abominations, and each defiles his neighbor's wife, and so on and so forth. In, in many ways, I almost think that there's kind of a separation here between first table, second table. They've broken both. You know, they, they've, they've violated their relationship with the Lord, but also with one another. And so, listen, you, the, I think the, the gist of it is, is like, listen, you broke all the commandments. Um, how can you continue to be in the land when uh, this was actually part of the covenant promise that I gave you? Uh, this is not just, you know, you've got this coming no matter what, but you were unfaithful to the very promises that, uh, that I made with you. And so then it naturally flows into the fact that, you know, I'm going to make this land a desolation and a waste and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. But even then, even amidst, even in the midst of this destruction in verse 29, um, it says, then they will know that I am the Lord. And so still in the end, this is still all part of God's self-revelation. I mean, if we want to put it in Lutheran terms here, we've already sort of gotten both law and gospel, although not necessarily always in that order, but we've had it interspersed back and forth, back and forth throughout this entire chapter. And that the Lord really does reveal himself um, he does indeed reveal himself in both, but as you've been pointing out all this time, um, 
it's the fall of Jerusalem that really becomes pivotal in all of this, where the wrath of God is poured out on the people that becomes really a revelation in many ways of his will. How much more then when his own son comes to Jerusalem and once again, Jerusalem rejects him, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under, under her wings, but you are not willing, right? So we end up, uh, what is that? Matthew chapter 24. And Jerusalem and its religious leadership rejects Jesus. And yet, nevertheless, he is the one who ultimately suffers the judgment of God on their behalf, though. It's not Jerusalem. And so, you know, so going back to verse 11, where the Lord said, listen, I didn't really want to hurt these people at all, right? I don't want to see you die. Ultimately, the cross becomes the place where that part of God's heart, you might say, becomes the most clearly manifest. He did not, he so wanted, or he so, I should say, did not want us to die that he was willing to put his own son to death. And that's really where the cross kind of comes into full focus here. Yeah. For for sure. You got about two and a half minutes, Pastor Johnson, to cover verses 30 through 33. Oh, man. <laughs> Have at it. Yeah, so I think this last little bit is, uh, is fascinating. Um, what the people apparently are saying, like, Ezekiel has become a bit of a sideshow, right? They're, they're all really fascinating what he's, he, uh, he says. Oh, hey, hey let's come and, and hear what the prophet has to say. But they aren't really taking it to heart. And I think there's a there's a modern application for this um, because it's I think one of two things can easily happen in the church, um, you know, especially when you have like a particularly um, you know gifted individual, you know, people can easily become attracted to one's personality or one's uh, you know uh, their uh, eloquence. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of pastors really want to play into that. And we get, we, we get confused between, you know, the, you might say, um, you know, performance versus prophecy. Um, and so the, uh, you might say the application for us, for us today is that, uh, that on the one hand, you know, we, of course, we don't, you know, we don't just say, well, I'm just going to preach, you know, the gospel to, uh, you know, to my people in my corner of the world, and I'm not going to try to translate for the outside world um, at all. No, we, we really do need to endeavor to make the, um, the gospel not as palatable, but as understandable as possible for the, uh, the outside world. But at the same time, we also have the responsibility that we cannot conform the Lord's word to uh, modern sensibilities. You know, just because there's, t there's tons of stuff the Lord says that we don't like to hear. I mean, uh, you know, I'll be the first person to raise my hand. And I think it's always going to be a temptation, just like it was in Ezekiel's day, even though I don't think Ezekiel's guilty of it, that, um, that we would gather around us teachers that will tell us what our itching ears want to hear. And I think Ezekiel is both an encouragement and a warning to us that we would not do that, but that we would, whatever the Lord gives us to say, that is precisely what we would say. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 to 33. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. 
you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. We love to answer your questions here on the show. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.